welcome to That's Podcasting, a boo-vee-boozical podcast. I'm suddenly Cody Plantsby. And I'm Paul Ponte, too. And this week, we are wrapping up Spooky Season. Uh, happy Halloween. If you're listening to this on Halloween weekend, uh, hope you're enjoying that Zoom Halloween party. Exciting. Very exciting times. Uh, hope that you are all wearing pants do the full costume. Don't half-ass this shit. Just because you're on Zoom and you feel like, oh, well, I can, you know, half of my costume. I don't need to do the rest of the costume. Bullshit. Do it all. Uh, I did do a... Uh, if you, Some people may know this uh, who, are, who are listening because you, a lot of you are people we know in real life. But, uh, yeah, I do uh, music. So I did an open mic and it was a Halloween-themed open mic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I did a my Jon Snow costume. Excellent. Uh, uh, I did it with shorts on because they were not going to see the bottom half. So, oh, damn it, Paul <laughs> and Cody, and I had to take the cape off at some point because it was so freaking hot. Because people may not know this if we don't know us. Yeah, we live in California where it's still good in the seventies or eighties. So you mean sweater yeah. weather? It's seventy, so I broke out the sweater. I was like, "Ooh, yeah, getting today, a little chilly today the, tonight." Today was the first day I actually busted out a long sleeve. I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, it's, it's starting to get a little chilly." The moment it gets to seventy. I'm breaking out the sweater. Any excuse. Also, Cody, this is a Halloween on a Saturday mm-hmm. with an absolute full moon. Literally, the peak of its brightness will be on Halloween night, and Ooh. we cannot have Halloween parties. And a Saturday night, Halloween, full moon. And for those of us that observe daylight savings, uh, we fall back. So there will be an extra hour of partying, too. Great. You, this is this is again. There's some cosmic uh, fuckery going on, where you had that, you had four twenty twenty, four twenty twenty twenty, and uh, we can't enjoy any of this shit because nope. COVID still is, um, you know, fucking with us. Anyway, yep. let's talk about uh, this week's film, which is, uh, I think, the perfect way to end this month. One of my absolute favorite musicals. This is very much a um, a foundational musical for me uh i would say on a personal level paul and that is little shop of horrors we're talking about the 1980s thank you i was was just (laughs) to let you go uh we're talking about the 1986 film little shop of horrors specifically talking about the what i believe the superior director's cut uh, in fact, I think when they first announced that they were finally going to release the director's cut, it was first called the intended cut, uh, which mm. there you go. It's uh, I mean, this is this is the Blade Runner of musicals in my mind, in, in that if you're not watching the director's cut, you're not really watching the movie. Um, all that said, uh, this is the first musical I ever got to do on stage. I feel like that's a lot of people when they go to high school, they end up doing this musical because it is just a fun, campy, good old time, you know, fun for the whole family where, uh, everyone in the cast gets eaten alive by the end. So just great, wholesome family fun. The popularity of this musical that has persisted through the years is kind of remarkable, uh, it has it has remained one of the most popular musicals and a very popular movie musical among even more casual musical musical fans. 
And uh, I'm trying to pinpoint exactly what it is, but I feel like the answer is a lot easier than uh, I think. And it's the fact that it's Alan Menken and it's Howard Ashman, who, of course, go on to create some of the most seminal children's musicals of all time in the next uh, decade after this movie. Yeah, that. And then, like you said, the part where people do it in high school a lot. It's yeah. just, you know, uh, the, 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 the literary uh, folks love uh, Catcher in the Rye because... It's something you grow up reading because you read it in high school. Right. Uh, it, it's one of those things. Um, I, I'm curious because uh, I've seen a high school production of this, um, but I don't remember it fully. How is how was all the the domestic abuse talk? Uh, it's it's in there. It's just in there. Yeah, okay. It's in I'm there. just curious. I was just curious oh. if they would if they I would mean, try to soften that a bit. He's or clearly not. a villain, so that's probably why they don't play it down. Yeah, uh, we're talking about the dentist, aka Orrin Scrivello, who yes is a uh, yeah is a bad guy, very bad guy. Uh, so they, no, they don't really tone it down because there's only that one okay. moment in the amount of uh, references to it you see in the movie is the amount of references there are to it in the. Uh, stage version so okay. it, it's about the same. I was just curious because I, I, I don't remember I was like I wonder if they did yeah. anything with that yeah this know. was uh, I played Mr. Moshnik in uh, my high school production it was the first musical I ever did uh, met friends that I still have to this day met my wife doing this musical back in high school so yeah this uh, this one means a lot to me I love this one mm-hmm. it's got a, it's, and yet you didn't want a giant plant at your wedding and no yeah uh, that was a that was a misstep that was a big misstep. But you know what? Considering the amount of maintenance that that plant needed in our show and apparently the amount of maintenance this plant needed in this movie, uh, maybe it would have been a little much. But um, yeah, it is kind of incredible, though, the uh, just the shelf life of this movie, how it's uh, obviously gained a ton of love and respect over the years and how yeah i mean it's i I think before we go any further we have to do we do have to mention as i did earlier the fact that this is the beginning of one of the most successful writing partnerships in movie musical history the fact that it's alan menken it's howard ashman uh who then are propelled to success what this is what does little mermaid come out two years later i believe 1988 so this is two years prior to that uh, where they have great success here, but it's yeah, The Little Mermaid, uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, most of Aladdin. Uh, unfortunately, Howard Ashman. Mermaid uh, is eighty nine. Eighty nine. Okay, so three years later, and I mean, what they about probably a year later they start developing the project. If not, they're developing it right as Little Shop is coming sure. out. Um, but yeah, and of, of course, sadly uh, and tragically, Howard Ashman uh, died, passed away due to AIDS complications. Uh, so we never, we were deprived of what was looking to be the most prolific um, writing duo in Disney history next to like the Sherman brothers and, and all that. Um, and you do see so much of what they bring to that Disney formula you can see why Disney watched this movie and despite the content which is very much not Disney friendly you can see why they totally gravitated to these guys and said you are going to revive the Disney animated musical and uh, they were right yeah that's actually pretty crazy if you think about it like because like I'm looking at the thing right now and it's and it's funny like because he did, he did, of course, this. He did, then he did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but he only composed a song that was for an unproduced sequel, which is like. Wait, hold nothing. the phone. 
Alan Menken in and Howard he, Ashman. He, no, how uh, Mankin by himself. Mankin by himself. He okay. produced a song. He composed a song that was for a sequel, for an uh, for an unproduced prequel to Roger Rabbit that never happened. It's weirdness. I know. Uh, Where can I find this song? I know that's how it, apparently it's called. This only happens in the movies. As you know, as I, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the great American film, uh, and oh my god, I never knew this until this moment, and I feel ashamed. Um, wow, I gotta find it. If, if it's out there, it's, uh, find it. it's one of five songs made for uh, for an unproduced uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit prequel, who discovered Roger Rabbit. Uh, it found life when it was recorded by Broadway actress Carrie Butler for her debut album, Faith, Trust, and Pixie Dust, a collection of covers of her favorite Disney songs, which I imagine you are now punching into your your iTunes or whatever to grab because, yeah, you will hear a song from the unproduced uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit That's prequel. incredible. I, I've known so much about the... So if they produced five songs, that mean that one would have been a musical. They tried, yeah. We Oh, God. Duh. I'm so upset. We could have had a whole four-hour episode where I wax poetic about Roger Rabbit, but no, <laughs> but no. Here we are, stuck yep. doing you know little shop. Uh, in, no, I'm kidding. Um, but it's so okay. So let's just get this right. So in his film career, starting in '86, Little Shop of Horrors, Mankin. We're talking. Sorry, yeah, yeah, Mankin. Okay. This, this is this is what we're going with. Within ten, within. I'm not even going to say go 10 years. I'm going to go within eight years. He composes songs with Tim Rice and Howard Ashman, with John Williams, mm-hmm. with Elton John and Tim Rice. It's this is the in his in his first eight year run of, of doing movies. Yeah. I mean, Disney so just said you're the guy uh, after yeah. this movie. Uh, obviously, they would have loved a world where it was him and Ashman together for all these years. Of course. Um, but the fact is, yeah, they got Mankin. Then, yeah, the three I mentioned, um, Hunchback, uh, I believe he co-writes. Yeah, Pocahontas, uh, I believe. I could be wrong on that. Um, what, Hercules, I believe, is also a Mankin, if if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Pocahontas, Hercules. Okay. Uh, yeah, Hunchback. The Shaggy Dog. Shaggy Dog, which we all Fair remember. Uh, did he do? Tangled. I mean, everything. Did he do Milan as well? I could see. Mulan, I, I, it's, no. it's hard to. Yeah, it's it's uh, there's no an overlap on at one point. Yeah, there's there's a point where it's uh, here. OK, finally, I've got it up. Thank God. Uh, yeah, there it is. A Who Framed Roger Rabbit songwriter. Yeah, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules. Then he takes a nice big break. Home on the Range, which in many ways is considered the nail in the coffin for 2D animation for uh, Disney animation. Kind of incredible. Uh, I will say, yeah, I am very happy, uh, you know, say what you will about the Disney um, live action versions mm-hmm. of their cartoons, which, you know, there is a lot to say and a lot not to say about some of them. Uh, but, More not said, better. Uh, but I do like the fact that they continue to bring him back to help yes. rescore them yes. as opposed to just, you know, mercenarying it out. So <laughs> the best part of that new waking beauty, up. Uh, the, the, thank you. Uh, is Folgers in your cup. And of course, the best part of the new Beauty and the Beast live action, I felt like was the new Mankin songs uh, yeah. where they fit right in. They were they were 
I mean, I feel like the song we always talk about of the worst example of let's put a new song for the movie is that Les Mis song. Yeah. Um, whereas the on the complete other side is those uh, really good Beauty and the Beast songs by Mankin. Um, so, yeah, the guy knows what he's doing. He's pretty good. Uh, got to see him live a few years ago when uh, Chris and I went to go watch uh the Beauty and the Beast live in concert at the Hollywood Bowl. And then I think it was the last night and surprise, surprise, he came out for uh, a little encore performance of, I believe, two or three of his songs. And uh, did I cry? Maybe. Yes, I did. Uh, I definitely did because uh, that was a really cool moment. But we're talking about Little Shop of Horrors, which uh, has its own broad and long, long, long history. In fact, we can go all the way back. Uh, you know, really... It's, it's much like Paul caring for a beautiful plant and intending to it and, and nursing it to become big and beautiful. You know, you have to plant the seeds and water it all these years. And they plant the seed for this idea nearly a century before this film even comes out. Uh, the story of the hapless plant shop employee and his bloodthirsty flower from space can be traced uh specifically back to 1932. That's when author John Collier, known for his short stories and some screenplays, um, actually another film turned musical, I Am a Camera, which is based on the Berlin stories, which then eventually becomes the basis of the Tony Award-winning, Academy Award-winning musical Cabaret. Uh, Collier also contributes to the screenplay for the Academy Award-winning film African, The African Queen, uh, although he goes uncredited for that. Anyway. In 1932, he publishes a short story called Green Thoughts. It's about a man, which is about a man-eating plant. Then in 1956, the second formative text uh, for this film is released. Famed sci-fi writer Arthur C. Clarke writes a short story called The Reluctant Orchid, uh, which not only features a flesh-hungry plant, but a timid main character who tries to satisfy the plant's need for human flesh. In fact, Clarke's story is inspired by an H.G. Wells short story, The Flowering of the Strange Orchid, published just about 88 years before The Little Shop of Movie Musicals released, uh, all the way back to 1894. Uh, in fact, I may have got the math wrong there, but uh, yeah, 90, 90 uh, some odd years before, excuse me. I'm not good at math. Uh, but anyway, a long time before this movie came out, uh, you can trace back the origins. All of these wow. stories... They inspire screenwriter Charles B. Griffith and legendary cult filmmaker Roger Corman. The two work together uh, for most of those for many, many projects. Uh, and the two come up with The Little Shop of Horrors. It's released in 1960, and it's a tale of Seymour, Mushnik, Audrey, and their bud, bloodthirsty star plant, Audrey Jr., not Audrey II. Corman, of course, famous for his efficiency as a director. And Little Shop might actually be the best example of this. The film was apparently shot in just under three days. That is it. Apparently two and a half days, to be exact. Gold. Uh, Clint Eastwood, eat your heart out. Uh, the movie was a critical success. Uh, doesn't make much of a dent financially. Uh, it does provide audiences, though, with the first look at a rising star by the name of Jack Nicholson. He plays the masochistic dental patient, and this was just his fourth film role. 
apparently he also said at the premiere he was he didn't know if the audience liked it or not because all of the movies he had been in prior to this were all terrible and he said everyone was laughing and he said i didn't know if this was good or not and then he was like oh wait this is what good movies feel like okay got it mm. cool uh for for years, it actually seems like that uh, little shop of horrors would just be the answer to a trivia question uh, for guys like Jack Nicholson and uh, for Roger Corman. But all of that change in, changes in 1982 when up and coming writers Alan Menken and Howard Ashman take the now cult classic film and make it into a full fledged musical. They drop the the among many other notable changes and they open the show off Broadway on May 6th, 1982. It's a smash hit, both critically and commercially. By the time it ends its first run, Little Shop was actually the third longest running show in history uh, for off-Broadway, and I think even Broadway shows at the time. Uh, and it was the highest grossing off-Broadway show of all time. Uh, when was when was home? When was the uh, musical released? 1982. And then it went off, uh, I believe, 86 or 80, I think 87. Was its final year? So okay. I should say third longest running show in the history of off-Broadway productions, which nonetheless, quite an accomplishment for this little musical that could. So it's a smash hit based off of a campy Hollywood property. Sounds like a slam dunk for movie adaptations. Add in the fact that you got music industry mogul David Geffen, of course, Geffen Records, and a very famous, the uh, very successful Geffen Productions, film productions. Um, he is attracted to this. He's on it, and he becomes the executive producer of this film. This is what made me like really interesting. Because I was like, David Geffen producing this movie. How mm -hmm. weird is that? So I looked up his little uh, filmography. So before this, he only really produced one movie, and that was Personal Best. It's a sports movie hmm. about like triathletes see now i'm thinking about it and i'm like oh wait i remember geffen productions being you know I, I remember seeing that title card for at least a few movies in my youth yeah you know but him, him himself his name like as david geffen ah, producer solely producer is, got it, got it. is is little shop of horrors the beetlejuice animated series that's weird that's really uh, weird interview with the vampire and he is the producer of the upcoming remake of Little Shop of Horrors. Okay, so he's clearly uh, he's got a he's got a style he likes. Clearly, yes, he's into blood, baby. He yeah. loves that blood. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I assume at the end of this episode we're going to talk about the remake, but yeah, uh, we'll we'll wrap up with some thoughts about uh, some of the the remake that uh, is going to be happening. Yeah. But it is crazy that he's coming back to produce the remake as well. So yeah, know. he just loves this shit. I love it, baby. I love I love Little yeah. Shop. So, yes, Geffen is in. He loves Little Shop. He's a Little Shop guy. Uh, and for the time, for a time, it was actually one of the hottest uh, properties in Hollywood. Some of the names who are connected to this movie early on. Steven Spielberg, fresh off of E.T. and Indiana Jones, uh, was set to produce uh, I thought I may have seen something possibly about him directing it but for sure he was on to be executive producer along with Geffen the first choice for director was none other than Martin Scorsese uh, Scorsese actually saw this as you know it kind of makes sense for Scorsese which one it had been 
uh, maybe less than a decade removed from New York, New York. And two, I could totally see him being like, oh, yeah, I want to make the Ode to B movies, to the Corman movies. Like, I want to do that. That's that's a detractive project to me. Uh, actually, make, he would have actually, I think, done a really interesting job with this movie. Um, he actually wanted to shoot the film entirely in 3D as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I could see that. Yeah. 3D was all the rage at the time. It was. They're like, oh, we could have the plants going towards the screen. Ooh. And remember, too, when, what, in 2011, he does Hugo, which was also shot in 3D, uh, a movie. Yeah. Which, for a movie, by the way, that got nominated for Best Picture, I feel like criminally underrated. I really like Hugo. Hugo's a really yeah, good movie. Yeah, I really enjoy Hugo also. I yeah. think it's a really good movie. And one of the few movies, I think, that takes advantage of the 3D uh of the 3d format and does it really well. Uh, so that kind of gives you a hint of like, man, it would have been cool if Scorsese had, had, had gotten a hold of this. So he does eventually get to scratch that 3d itch. Uh, John Landis also tabbed as director for a short time, uh, which I just but, feel like, but then they realize they don't really want to kill the people. Thank in the movie. you. <laughs> I had a feeling it was coming. Uh, yeah. Why, why is it every, every big project of this era? He, he was, uh, attached to. So anyway, he and was a hot name. He was a really he was... hot name. He was a really hot name. Yeah. And uh, I think most interestingly, uh, Barbara Streisand was considered as director. She was also, at the same time, considered for the role of Audrey. Hmm. Which I could see that. I would have loved that. I think that would have been I really I could see good. that, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, she was, at the same time, they were not, uh, they were just saying, you're going to do both things. So, that, that would have been interesting. But all of them decide, no, we can't do it. No, no just too much of a time crunch Scorsese was the only one that nearly got there the director's chair was eventually offered to Muppet master himself Frank Oz we've talked a little bit about in the Muppets take Manhattan episode about the filmography of Frank Oz which is a really really interesting one and this is kind of this really is the first one that catapults him. Obviously, he had done movies with the Henson Company, uh, co-directs Dark Crystal, Muppets Take Manhattan. But this is the one that I think gets him from you're just a Muppet guy to, OK, this guy can handle a big movie with a big budget uh, with big stars. Also, he brings Robert Painter with him to this, which is the cinematographer from Muppets Take Manhattan. Yes. And also, this is what's this is this guy's career before Muppets Take Manhattan. By the way, it's it's so this is what he has. He has uh, High Velocity, The Big Sleep, Superman Two, Superman Three, American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, and then he gets Muppets Take Manhattan, Spies Like Us, Little Shop of Horrors. Also, he's the cinematographer for the Thriller video. That's okay. Well, oh, that's I think we talked about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah it's quite a uh, '80s catalog he's got there. It's pretty impressive. Very, very impressive. Yeah. The and then I looked at also at the uh, the editor of this movie, John Gibson. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Gibson did Kelly's Heroes. Other than that, not really. Oh, Fish Called Wanda. Okay. Well, okay. You know there you go. He's, and I think Oz even brings some of the Muppet alum, some of the puppeteers along with him uh, to help with Audrey 2, which was an incredible oh. task. <laughs> this is why I looked this up. And that's why I John Gips, uh John Gibson's also the editor for A Hard Day's Night. Are you kidding me? <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm serious. Wow. He's the editor for A Hard Day's Night. And he was actually hired to be the editor of Star Wars. But his first cut. They went, no, and they fired him and replaced him with someone else. Wow. That is, wow, that's pretty incredible. All right. I can only imagine, 
You know, I get annoyed, Cody, if I if I stutter too much on a podcast that I do that I host. Like when I host, you know, wrestling podcasts, and then I co-host this one with you. Sure. I get I I get annoyed at myself when I mess up a little bit of detail. If I messed up editing Star Wars, yeah, and then for like the next thirty years. All I would think about is how I blew the chance to be the editor of Star Wars and probably the rest of the Star Wars franchise. Oh, yeah, exactly. Once you're in, you're in. Like it's a it's a wrap. Yeah. I was like, why did I, I was like, why did I make why did I make a note about the the editor? And I was like, that's why, because yeah, that's that's a crazy. That is like, crazy. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I, Hard Day's Night. Yeah. That's a, well. There you go. At least he had that. That's what got, that's what got him the gig at Star Wars. Actually, Here's what George it is. Lucas loved a Hard Day's Night. You can't. It's just again the universe will not let you get the Beatles and Star Wars in the same lifetime. That's just not fair. That's true. You get one That's or the true. other. He got the Beatles, and you get out with what you got. Okay, that's fine. So apparently, the biggest reason Oz was recruited for this movie, uh, as you heard the long list of all these acclaimed directors, uh, Oz wasn't really that kind of guy yet, but. Howard Ashman was a huge fan of Frank Oz, especially the character Miss Piggy. Part of the inspiration for Little Shop was his love specifically for Miss Piggy and of the Muppets. So he wanted to bring Oz on as a just a just kind of fanboy out. Despite that, Oz initially turns down the role um, because he can't figure out a way to bring new life to the movie on screen. Uh, but after some time with it, he decided to accept the role he, as he asked Ashman and, and Mankin, can I rewrite the stage script a little bit? There's going to be a little bit more from the Greek chorus. Got to cut some songs that he deemed unnecessary, specifically closed for renovation. Uh, it's just the gas, which is uh, the dentist sings that as he is uh, sucking up all the, the uh, all, all the gas, all the laughing gas and Mushnik and son, unfortunately, the, the best song in the show. Uh Oz then works with Howard Ashman to revise the script, and after three attempts, filming is set to begin. It should come as no shock that uh, the man who basically embodies the very heart and soul of the main character of the movie, Seymour Crowborn, that is, of course, uh, noted, uh, I was going to say American treasure, but he's Canada's. We can't lay claim to him. Rick Moranis. Uh, by the way, we just save Rick Moranis at all costs. Uh, please, uh, please uh, donate to my fund. Do uh, save Rick Moranis uh, and uh, just to kind of, you know, put some ice on his black eye. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. Uh, he's the only person who's even considered for the role. Uh, David Geffen basically handed it to him. As for Audrey, Geffen attempts to use his clout in the music industry to try and woo arguably the two biggest women in pop music during the 1980s. Okay, I, I was just—I had to double check. Yeah, Ghostbusters was before this. That makes sense. Okay, there you go. That they're like they saw him yeah. and they went, "That's the guy." Yep. Yeah, <laughs> they exactly. went, "That's the it's guy." Just before it. Moranis is what he's SCTV at this point. So like, if you're a comedy fan, you know him. And at this point, a lot of SCTV well, stars had Ghostbusters. Taken off. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And then Ghostbusters, yeah. clearly. Um, yeah. So it's him. It, it was a slam dunk. But yeah, those two pop stars I was mentioning, one would be Madonna who don't think she had uh, uh, any major film roles at this point. Yeah, uh, she wasn't British yet either, so that's she good. She was not British yet. That would come many years later. Yeah. yeah. She wasn't British. Uh, she wasn't, uh, you know, talking like a 
13-year-old boy uh, playing Counter-Strike or Fortnite, uh, you know, and using uh, racial epithets when, uh, again, you're a white lady. You're not allowed to say those things, Madonna. Stop it. Stop it. Anyway. Uh, I'm going to roll up... uh or a copy of Sex, or whatever magazine she was in, I'll balp her on the nose. Yeah, exactly. Stop it. Stop. It. Stop. Stop. Stop that now. Quit it. So, yeah, you know what, though? Uh, to, to In all seriousness, she would have been a good choice. If they were going yeah. for the she's got to be a superstar, Madonna's actually a good choice. But yeah. the next one probably even a better choice. And apparently they were further along with Cindy Lauper, uh, who really. Oh, yeah. Would have oh, been great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Would have been great. I mean, she oh really God. is like, if you're thinking, oh, who is an Audrey type person and personality oh and voice? It's Cindy Lauper. I'm pretty sure Long Island is shaped like Cindy Lauper at this point. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> I mean, one of the most iconic Long Island accents of all time, besides what? Maybe Marissa Tomei and uh, sure. my cousin Vinny. <laughs> I mean. Sure. Uh, you know what? Now I'm come to think of it. When is Cindy Lauper's first big hit? Uh, when when is what I guess girls just want to have fun would be her, her first uh, foray into the here we go I don't know you may get it before I do her racing to the eighty three okay so it's a year after Little Shop comes out I was gonna say possibly maybe they use her as the inspiration for the character but that's not the case uh, because boy they sound alike both. Uh, both singers turned down the role due to scheduling conflicts. Uh, as I mentioned, Barbara Streisand also offered the part. Nothing came of it. So eventually uh, they go with the actress that John Landis had originally picked. That would be Ellen Green, who played the role of Audrey more than anyone. She was, of course, she originates the role of Audrey in the off-Broadway cast. She was also on the original West End cast. Uh, and this is just, again, this, this woman is amazing and she's awesome and she just kicks so much ass. She performed, she reprised her role as Audrey as recently as 2015 in an off-Broadway production alongside Jake Gyllenhaal. She's awesome. That, and she sounds. It's on. I, I'm positive it's on YouTube. She sounds great. She still sounds so good. What was Jake Gyllenhaal just guesting, or was he? Uh, they doing it, was, it. I think it was a short run. I'm pretty okay. sure it was a short so you just run. Felt like you just felt like being in it. But I mean, he did like a few. I mean, you, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal's done Broadway. I know, so, but are the, I mean, yeah, at this right. point, like, he doesn't really need to go to an off-Broadway thing and do that kind no, of thing. No, but like, when it's Little Shop, it's like, it's one, Little Shop, off-Broadway, the origins of it. So I think it's a little bit different. There's a little more okay. to it, you know. Um, but yeah, that's just the kind of guy he is. Uh, it's great, by the way. Look it up uh, if you can find, I think uh, there's a, a video of Suddenly Seymour with the two of them. Fantastic. She's a gem. Oz actually knew her, uh, actually did know her uh, because he was friends with her then boyfriend at the time, Marty Robinson, who worked with Oz and Jim Henson on Sesame Street. Uh, he would serve as one of the puppeteers for Audrey, too. Robinson convinces him that Green was the only person for the role, and so Oz gave her the part. Geffen did get to cast one major music star in the film. The voice of Audrey, too, is Levi Stubbs. He's best known, of course, as the lead singer of the legendary R&B group, The Four Tops. Uh, it would be his only film credit, 
But he made the most of it. The film's one original song that's sung by him, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, is nominated for an Academy Award. And I believe at the time... That's an original song? That's an original song. That is not from the stage version. It's a really that's good song. It's a great too. song. It's a really good song too. Uh, that's a great song. Yeah, I know. It fits right in. I'm. A, I would assume. No, because I mean, yeah, I get it. I mean, I. I guess that's the 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 perks of adapting something and making something original so soon after you yeah. make the music for the musical, as opposed to like when people try to come back like 15, 20 years later. It's really hard to capture that same like magic and mindset. Yep. Yep. Exactly. When you only it's only like a few years later, it's kind of like okay, they're still kind of in the same place, you know. Like, uh, maybe that's I don't know. Maybe that's something. No, to do I with think it, there's but. totally something to that. Plus, you know, it's they have Macon and Ashman basically there the entire time yeah. helping out. So yeah, it's great. I believe to this day, I'm not sure if it still holds up. No, it definitely doesn't, um, because I'm now thinking of uh, Three Six Mafia's "Hard Out Here for a Pimp," the Academy Award winning song uh, from Hustle and Flow. Damn right. But at the time, it was the only song ever nominated for an Academy Award that uses profanity. <laughs> uh, I actually met one of the members of Three Six Mafia, so I've met when an Oscar happen? winner. You did. <laughs> Hell uh, yeah, you did. Oh, I just want to. Deservedly get the right. so, by the way. Deservedly so. Hustle and Flow is a great film. I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, Juicy J. Uh, Shut the fuck up, Paul. You met Juicy J. Huh? When did this happen? He's the guy from 36 Mafia. Yes, right? I know. I'm, I'm oh. very well aware of who Juicy J is. <laughs> yeah, he was at uh, my friend Luke, who's a pro wrestler, knows him. Uh, and he went and watched Luke wrestle, and I and I met him. And there he is, Juicy J himself. Also, a great verse on that uh, Katy Perry song um, that he's on. That you know the one that sounds very oh, Dark Horse. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's him. One of her many songs where she just takes a a, a phrase and somehow works it into a song. <laughs> it's just like how how many times can you do this? She can't keep getting away with this. And yet she does, because she's yeah. America's sweetheart. Anyway, uh, Tisha Campbell, Tachina, Tachina Arnold, and Michelle Weeks, uh, they best out over a thousand young actresses for the roles of the Skid Row Urchins. Remarkably, all three actually knew each other prior to filming. Each of them were just about a year apart in age and had actually performed together in school and other community performances throughout New York, New York City. So, wouldn't you know it? Don't it go to show? You never know. The rest of the cast is populated with character actors and comedic stars of the era. Vincent Gardinia, star of films like Death Wish, and then a year later, uh, a memorable turn in the romantic comedy, another Academy Award winner, Moonstruck. Uh, he's cast as Mr. Mushnick, uh, apparently, just because Frank Oz liked his name. Okay. That's it. That could have worked out terribly, and yet it was perfect. All right. John Candy was apparently offered the role of Mr. Mushnick originally, but told them, uh, this isn't me. I'm not the right fit, but loved the play and loved the script so much. He said, I would still want to be a part of it, which is why he then plays that energetic radio host that interviews. It's such C1. a John Candy thing to do. He's the best. He was oh, the best. Oh, shucks. I don't think this is right for me. Oh, <laughs> just. Yeah. Let someone like, else do it. It's like he's a character from one of his, from one of his movies. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly it. He was, he was that guy. Uh, by the way, great call because him as the radio announcer is a great, uh, is a great moment in this movie. It is. It is. The amount of 
I mean, a lot of these people were big at the time, and now they've risen to more legendary status. But I was not aware of the amount of cameos I was going to see. So in this many movie. people, yeah. At a, per- at a certain point, they just turned to SNL, and are yeah. like, "Okay, we're going to round out the rest of the cast with like SNL and an SETV alum. Uh, obviously, Candy, Steve Martin plays Orrin Scrivello, the sadistic dentist. Christopher Guest makes a brief but very memorable appearance as yes. that like almost robotic customer who's like, what's that plant in the window? And Bill Murray, of course, cast in the role that made Jack Nicholson famous years prior, uh, the dental patient who gets off on pain. Uh, apparently, for that scene, Murray improvised 100% of his dialogue. Of course. Yeah, of course he did. It's it's I was like looking out for it. And even the way Steve Martin is reacting to it, he's just kind of letting them riff. He's the, you. Well, if you watch it again, uh, look how Steve Martin just gets out of the way and just says nothing. <laughs> it's great. So filming begins for this movie at the famous Pinewood Studios in London. Oz and the crew ran into a major hurdle early on. The elaborate Audrey 2 puppet. There was, uh, I think, about six different versions of the Audrey 2. Uh, just uh, first first of all, a remarkable feat of puppeteering, of puppetry, uh, whatever. It looks way better than I thought it was going to. It's, every time I watch this movie, I am taken aback at just how impressive that thing is. I don't think there has been... I mean, this is a it's kind of a bold claim, considering this is Frank Oz, who worked on a ton of things, projects, uh, Dark Crystal, which is uh, an incredible feat uh, in terms of, of the art of puppets. Um, but I, I, I'm going to go on a limb and say this might be the best puppet in film history. Like it's mm. it's that good. It's that good. It's like when he moves. This is the thing uh, we watched this. I watched this last year. It's actually this movie kind of inspired me to be like, I should do a podcast about movie musicals because of all the information we dug in about this movie and how they actually got Audrey 2 to look like that. Um, So without, you know, what, let's just get to it. The elaborate Audrey 2 puppet wasn't very convincing when it first moved since uh, especially the bigger ones just too damn big and it just and actually required 60 puppeteers at the biggest size to just move it. While reviewing test footage of the puppet, they realized the movements looked more convincing when the tape was played back at a faster speed. In fact, sometimes it's even played backwards um, and it looked even more convincing. So for the rest of the production, when there's large, when Audrey 2 is basically at the size that Audrey 2 is for Feed Me the first time and everything after that. Uh, Any scene with Audrey 2 was slowed down to 12 to 16 frames per second. The actors are lip syncing in slow motion during these scenes. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Which is another thing I was looking out for. And it's really there's a moment where if you're looking for it, maybe you can see that it looks a little dubbed. But it's if you didn't know any better, you would have no idea. Um, Yeah. Which is why it's looks so seamless the way Audrey 2 is moving to the point where it's like, I can't believe there's no CGI that there's no, like it's all just practical effects and camera tricks. It's crazy. It's really crazy. Hmm. So the six different versions of Audrey, as I mentioned, each at a different stage of growth, no green screens, no blue screens were used at the end of each day. The plant had to be cleaned, had to be repainted and patched up every day 
for approximately three hours after shooting was done for the day. Filming was, when filming was complete, Little Shop was reportedly the most expensive movie ever made by Warner Brothers at that point. Uh, one of the main reasons being the elaborate original finale of the film, featuring multiple plants terrorizing New York City that, by some estimates, cost $5 million alone. Uh, this would have been more in line with how the stage version of the original movie ends, the main characters all falling victim to the plant instead of all... Uh, instead of a happy ending where... Yeah, exactly. There's just a little plant growing in the front and that's the only... Right. Instead of... That's the, the only clue they have to the impending there's doom. Like a, yeah, there is still that impending doom, but Audrey and But maybe Seymour they'll just live. have another cute adventure. Right. Audrey and Seymour live. Everyone lives happily ever after. Uh, don't feed the plants. All that. Uh, I haven't seen the original one in a while. Do they still sing Don't Feed the Plants at the end? I think they do. I'm pretty sure I they do. so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. With Seymour and Audrey. Watch today. Why am I yeah. so blank on it? I with Seymour with and Audrey singing, and I believe they do. So for the original ending Oz and company spared no expense even hiring a renowned model designer Richard Conway who had done acclaimed work on films like Flash Gordon and Brazil over the last few years uh, he's in there to design many versions of New York City to be destroyed they're racking up costs on staff alone yeah big big names movie. working on big big projects like yeah you're yeah. right so why doesn't this extravagant version of the film see the light of day until nearly 30 years later well Paul Unfortunately, our hometown of San Jose is to blame. We play a really? part in this. Yes. At the very first test screening in San Jose, things were apparently going very well with the test audience. Uh, Frank Oz noted they were applauding after every song, really into it, were loving it. And then Seymour and Audrey die. Or Audrey dies specifically first. And a hush falls over the audience. Then Seymour falls victim to the plant. And then, of course, the rampage and the exit poll had just 13 percent of the test audience recommending the film. You know how hard it is to get that Lova score? Yeah, like exactly. the worst movies ever made. Like they get that audience score of like C plus. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's it is wild that. It got that low. It just goes to show that an ending will make or break your movie. Really, is what it is. Uh, and in this case, people like to see the heroes live. They do. I get it. Uh, and in fact, uh, Oz figured out why the original ending didn't initially resonate with moviegoers in an interview later on. Quote, I learned a lesson. In a stage play, you kill the leads and they come out for a bow. In a movie, they don't come out for a bow. They're dead. What uh, do you do? You know what what theater was screened at? You know what? That's a good question. I'm trying now to whittle it down. And sorry to go into deep San Jose history knowledge here for a minute. Uh, I would imagine what it would be maybe the old Camera Twelve downtown. That's that immediately comes to mind. How long was that up in a, in a functioning movie theater? There's I'm also thinking either those or you know remember those domes. The century, the century domes uh, on uh, Winchester. Yeah, that's that's the other yeah. one that comes to mind, um, which have been, which were there forever and ever. Uh, I, I just don't even know what else it could be. Yeah, if uh, if we got anybody out there with deep San Jose knowledge, uh, we'd love to know because that's the only two that really come to mind. 
Yeah, I'm trying to find out. Everyone just says San Jose. San Jose. Yeah, San, San Jose. Jose. I would I'm imagine it would to... be, yeah, camera 12, which I don't know if it even existed back then. Um, you know, because depending on the area of San Jose, maybe these people are a little too bougie, you know? It's just... <laughs> San Jose wasn't at that point yet. We were maybe a year or two away from yeah, uh, the still, influx you know, of, of Silicon Valley. but True. Uh, but these were still... still salt of the earth people here, Paul, you know? I don't know if you know, this is an agricultural town, you know, that's how we it really used to be grew. orange groves, orange groves. In fact, what better place to test your movie about a plant than, you know, the agricultural capital of the Bay Area? A really uh, good call on their part. Anyway, turns out San Jose didn't like it. That's the mm. main thing. So mm. Oz reshoots the ending now featuring Jim Belushi instead of uh, who would it have been? That was uh Paul Dooley originally uh, is the guy who is, as, as Seymour, is about to jump off the roof. He says, excuse me, Seymour, Crowborn, we're going to put the Audrey 2 in every store. Uh, Paul Dooley was not available for reshoots, so they get uh, Jim Belushi instead uh, to do that. Um, yeah, a very expensive reshoot on top of all of the other reshoots they had to do, all the other shit they had in this movie. Um, and yes, Audrey 2, uh, instead of killing Seymour and Audrey, Seymour saves Audrey and kills the plant. For years after the film's release, Geffen and Oz said that they were under the impression that a colored copy of the film's original finale didn't actually exist, um, and that the film, as it was originally intended, may forever be lost in time. However... 2011 comes around, Frank Oz announces at a Q&A at a Jim Henson exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, New York, that Warner Brothers had found the original color negatives of the ending and restored it with plans to release the director's cut the following year, as I mentioned, originally called the intended cut. Oz attends the first screening of the director's cut in October of 2012. He actually said that he feared that once again the audiences would respond negatively to the ending, but was delighted to find that the audience, as he put it, roared with glee as the plants terrorized New York City as the film came to an end. Again, another moment in the movie where you go, how the fuck did they pull this off? Because it looks so good. It really does. so impressive. Little Shop of Horrors, the theatrical cut, is released on December 19, 1986. To modest box office success, it made $39 million off of a $25 million budget. But thanks to the positive critical and audience reaction, as well as The Legend of the Lost Ending, the movie has grown a considerable cult following, and the stage musical remains one of the most popular shows in Broadway history. On to the film. We open up. Uh, did we open with like a title card like this uh, describing the events we are about to see uh, in all of the movies that we watched this month? <laughs> I believe so. Uh, the Rocky Horror, I don't think, has one, but I mean. No, but it has the mouth saying it out right. loud. It's basically. Exactly. There's a setting of the stage. Right. I mean, all of the movies we watched, other than Cannibal, um, are all odes to the B-movie era. Uh, odes to the sci-fi, uh, you know, the the Corman 
uh, Ed Wood sort of campy sci-fi films uh, of that era. So it kind of makes sense that they all start like this. And this one, of course, begins with this with uh, that title card title card with the words narrated by actor Stanley Jones on the 23rd day of the month of September in an early year of a decade not too long before our own. The human race suddenly encountered a deadly threat to its very existence and this terrifying enemy surfaced as such enemies often do in the seemingly most innocent and unlikely of places. And we kick off with a bang. Little Shop of Horrors, sung by the Skid Row Urchins. Uh, another one, much like uh, Rocky Horror, where the music is, uh, yeah, if it's an ode to the B-movies, it's an ode to the music that was popular uh, during those times. Yeah, I, I I went in and I went, is that Tisha Campbell? And it was. Yes, it uh, is. Yeah, that's Gina. That's Gina from Martin. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's... Uh, yeah, like it is kind of crazy to think like uh, the amount of like I said the amount of talent that that branch off of this movie. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, that was totally. I, I wish I was that good. Uh, <laughs> Tisha Campbell, as you mentioned, uh, of course, Rick Moranis. Like you said, Ghostbusters was all he had really done in the mainstream at this point. So it is. Uh, this kind of sets the stage for him for bigger and better things. Uh, also, uh, when the uh, Urchins are, uh, I hate calling them urchins, but that's what they're called in the movie. Uh, but as they are then walking through uh, the rain, how does their hair not get completely soaked? Uh, well, in, Cody. In Cody. fact, it stays perfectly dry, Paul. Well, you know. It's pretty warm. Is that is that a little thing called movie magic? Well, it's because they're magic, Cody. That's true. They are magic. They are wonderful. Their voices are definitely magic. Again, all three... Uh, were picked out of thousands of uh you could you could call them the greek chorus if you don't want to call them <laughs> i know uh, but that's what they're called urchin this urchin name <laughs> urchins it's an awful name but that's what they're called in the movie it's literally the name of the characters uh but yes they are the greek chorus essentially in this movie and um macon adopts that for literally a uh greek mythology musical he makes just about 10 years later Yep. There you go. The genesis of it all. The seeds, if you will, are planted right here. We meet Seaborg Crawlborn, played by Rick Moranis, uh, and his co-worker Audrey, played by Ellen Green. They work at Mushnick's Flower Shop uh, in the rundown and rough neighborhood of New York called Skid Row. Um, this is where we learn that Mr. Mushnick, uh, a very hardworking and uh, kind of uh, works his works both Seymour and Audrey to the bone. Uh, but we also learn that maybe Audrey has got maybe a real bad boyfriend. And she comes in with a shina, as she says. Uh, and Mr. Mushnick, of course, discouraging her uh, from seeing that boy. Uh, Mr. Mushnick then sees the Greek chorus, as he then refers to as the urchins, uh, as he shoes them off of the front. And says, don't you have somewhere better to be? Uh, get all, you know, somewhere to be like school or something like that. And of course, that is then where we learn of their dire story and of really Audrey and Seymour's dire straits in the song Skid Row, downtown Skid Row, um, which is the first of the um again where you see like the genesis of the disney films that come years later uh this is the want song that becomes the uh, seminal 
thing in in all Disney movies, really, um, once Howard Ashman and Alan Menken take over. At this point, I'm already like, okay, oh, it's it's crazy that like two super strong opening numbers like this. And it happens so fast, too. It's yeah. like a little bit of dialogue and then right into Skid Row. Yeah. I mean, I can see now why the original was such like a big hit. Because yeah, the, the songs are extremely catchy. It's, the it's songs there's are no way around so it. So catchy. They're so yeah. so catchy and so good, and uh, the perfect balance of like heartfelt and you know uh, and uh, very ridiculous, kind of over the top, uh, satirical, uh, very well balanced. Also, everyone very angry. Everybody in this song, just the angry faces of them as they're yeah. yelling, as they're singing about Skid Row. Uh, you got to feel for them. And the visual choreography is just great. It's very good. It's very yeah. good. It's, I mean, it is kind of amazing that they didn't consider Frank Oz sooner for the director role of this movie, you know? Considering yeah. that, and it's, and I know maybe it's just like, oh, he's just a Muppet guy, but it's like, but that also means he's got experience in three musicals. So, so I, I want to see, puppets, but I want to see the only remake I want to see this movie is one where it's all Muppets, and then Audrey Two is just a man in a plant costume. <laughs> 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 I was gonna go straight up body horror and be like a bunch of humans stacked in the Audrey Two plant shape. Oh no, just just moving. a guy, a guy in like a nice like felt, like like plant costume. That's what I want. That would be um, that'd be something. Yeah, we can do that for the live television uh, remake. That why hasn't that happened? By the way, what's going on there? Has it happened? And I just missed it. I don't believe they have. I, you know what? It's because they don't want to do that shit live with the puppet. Yeah, it's true. Recipe for disaster. Like, they, they just know they're like, we're going to fuck this up. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's a, it's a recipe for disaster. That will not work out well. Yeah. Absolutely won't. So Also, the, yeah. uh, one thing, the big the big Seymour finale was a big um, inspiration for the Evil Dead musical. There's there's a portion where they have like, much like they do in the stage production where they have the giant plant like through a hole in the side. They have that, but with like the tree monster in the Evil Dead, mm-hmm. and it has like the branches coming out. It's very much like the same. Like you could tell when they made that musical, they were like channeling their love of like Little Shop of Horrors. Oh yeah, I feel like so many musicals have taken a, a nod from this musical since. So yeah, we get kicked off with two fantastic numbers as we get the want song, not only for Seymour, but for Audrey, both uh, as we end with them at the street corner with all of the very angry Skid Row residents. Uh, We've also met Mr. Mushnick here, played by Vincent Gardenia, who is struggling from a lack of customers. He decides to close the store for the day after our second song is over. But Audrey suggests that he may have a little more success by displaying this new and unusual plant that Seymour has been caring to and catering to uh, that's in the basement. Uh, Seymour brings it out 
very strange looking thing. What is it? And as Mr. Moshek is saying, no way this is going to attract customers. You can't just put that plant in the window and suddenly someone walks in. Suddenly someone walks in. And it is Christopher Guest, who is absolutely hysterical <laughs> in this very brief moment. <laughs> so good. He's so funny in this moment. It's so stupid uh, how like robotic he is. And he asks, where'd you get that plant? And Seymour tells him. Uh, he explains in the song "Dadu," uh, the uh, just a yeah, that's it, just "Dadu," uh, "Dadu," a very little quick, uh, fun little uh, sort of a doo woppy uh, sort of uh, feel. To There's it. a lot of doo woppy, a lot of doo wop, a lot of yeah. doo wop. This one definitely so, as he is explaining exactly how he came to procure uh, this strange and interesting plant that now hangs out in the window. Uh, he bought it at a Chinese flower shop. There was a total eclipse of the sun that suddenly the plant appeared. Uh, yeah, there's nothing these... you can do. Yeah. Total eclipse of the sun. Thank you. Uh, not to be confused with a black hole sun. Um, Won't you come? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe wash away the, wash away the rain while we're at it. Maybe. How many songs are we going to get out of this? Mm. I think that's, I that's all I got. I mean, here comes the sun. Do 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 do. Thank you. Da Yeah, there you go. Which brings us back to this song. And now we're back to Da Do. So yeah, he gets the plan of the the total eclipse of the sun. Are these things connected? I guess we'll just have to keep watching to find out. He has named this strange and interesting plant the Audrey Two, which is a very sweet thing. And of course, he does have a secret crush on Audrey. Not so secret. Not so secret. It's really not much of a secret. I mean, that kind of was like you know. Seymour doesn't right there. Seymour's cards aren't too close to the vest. They're they're <laughs> they're pretty out there. No. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The shop closes for the day, and as Seymour is bringing Audrey two down, of course, Audrey two it seems to be wilting, doesn't have uh, enough food or something's going on. As he's been trying to do everything to feed this plant, giving this plant all of the things it needs. That's where we get the song as Seymour is just pleading with this plant to grow for him. Uh, Seymour's first moment to shine solo. Rick Moranis can sing, by the way. It's yeah. uh, some, he's, he, he does a damn good job. I, I mean it. He does a damn good job holding his own. Something also that dawned on me while watching this is that I like it better when Seymour is not like an incredible singer because mm. I also listened to the Broadway version from last year, which features Jonathan Groff as Seymour. Oh, wow. Everything's too clean. Everything's mm. too clean. And Jonathan Groff is, amaz- is an amazing singer. This is literally no disrespect yeah. to him. Like He's an incredible singer. He's incredibly talented. But it's just a little too shiny and squeaky clean for me. That's all. Yeah, you, know, you want a little bit I of like that. Uh, you want a it little bit of that. Little... He's not sure of himself, like the character. Like, right? He's yeah. got to have that little bit of a nerdy energy to him. Um, when I think of Groff, I think uh, not really that nerdy. Yeah, but yeah, that's just me. I see it. I see what you're saying. I I pick up what you're putting down. Thank you. Uh, this is also another yeah very doo wop fifties sort of feel. Um, and in the middle of the song, he says, what do you want from me, blood? He pricks his finger 
on some roses and realizes that Audrey does indeed want some blood. This is the Audrey that has the Maxwell House can, right? Yes. Which okay. the end of this song where, yeah, where he finishes it off, he gives Audrey the blood, starts, you know, drip, drip, drip into its mouth. In that gross scene where, uh, as the as the song ends, is just one of like a million just jaw-dropping moments where it's like, how do they do that? How do yeah. they? That looks so cool. Uh, yeah. Incredibly impressive what they did with the plants. They should have won like an honorary Oscar, honestly. Aesthetically, I really love the look of Audrey too in the in the little Maxwell House can. Uh, I actually looked up like uh, like people on Etsy. They make uh, you know like little like regular sized recreations of that in like the Maxwell House can and everything. But they're all like you know eighty to a hundred and something dollars. But I want them. I want one. Yeah, I do too. I I absolutely want one of those. Uh, in fact, I am surprised. Uh, I didn't bring it out. I should have been drinking from my Little Shop of Horrors mug that I bought at the Warner Brothers Studio Tour. Mm. Um, why are they not selling little toy Audrey 2s or you press, press a little button and, you know, it does the little pucker lips and everything? Like, it, that's a gold mine yeah. right there. Gold! A bank. A bank. It's a bank. Yeah. No, a bank. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You've. Oh, great. Oh, yeah, I got you. I got you. I got you. Put the coin in. Man, that would be cool. Feed, you push a button, it mm-hmm. goes, feed me. Put the coin in. I'm in on that. Boom. I'm in on that. Let's make this. What does it take? Who knows robotics? Do we have a friend who can... uh, Do we know anyone who was previously on BattleBots that's looking for work? Let me call my R&D team and I will get back to you. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. So now that Seymour has has quenched Audrey 2's thirst for blood, Audrey 2 is beginning to grow and grow rapidly. And it's making Seymour something of a local celebrity. Uh, is this where we get John Candy here is where he, he's now bringing Audrey with him uh, to the radio, the radio yes. station. I got to say uh, that uh, f- for one, um, you know, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to I'm not going to make a joke about eating ass. I'm not going to do it, Paul, even though it's right there. Remember where Audrey, the woman's bent over, and Audrey's like, ah, yum, 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 oh, yum, yeah, yeah, and uh, like wants to bite the butt is the joke, and uh, I'm not gonna do what uh, us millennials do and make that joke. I'm not gonna do it. Okay. No, uh, but John Candy, his manic energy in this scene is so good. Is is so wonderful, and just Rick Moranis, great reaction shots to everything that's going on. He's so good, and I can tell you, Paul, as a as a veteran of uh, terrestrial radio, of commercial radio, it's exactly like this. This is exactly what That's happens. What <laughs> yeah, uh, lots of two microphones going whoa, 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 whoa and uh, you yeah, know, all that. That's that's exactly what's happening. In uh, you know what I'm saying that jokingly, but now I'm actually thinking about it. There were definitely a few shows. That did exactly the type of gags that are happening in this scene. And then he has like an like a like a unidirectional microphone that he has Rick Moranis speak into. It's like an instrument microphone. I was like, that's a weird choice. Yes. It's a very <laughs> weird choice. He's gets he's, he's nice. He's got two perfectly good professional mics right there, yeah. and he makes them talking to the little rinking dink one. Those yeah, make, like I have fair. one of those. That's supposed to be like for like guitar or right. like drum. Not for him. 
Exactly. Yeah. Also, the when he walks in and uh, he does the whole like, uh, you know, like oh, your husband. I'm like, uh, he's like the guy walking in on the the hus the wife cheating on him. Uh, just makes me laugh like an idiot every time. It's so dumb. Uh, love this whole scene, but really to the point. Seymour is becoming something of a local celebrity, um, and you could say the town really wants to see more. Thank you very much. That's great. You can kick me off the podcast anytime you like. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Mushnik and Audrey are, are listening in. She's now got another Shina, as it were. Um, as we are now learning more that she is suffering at the hands uh, of her boyfriend, Mr. Scrivello. Um, but she, as she's done hearing Seymour on the radio and starts to dream of a more simple life with Seymour and a simple life where she can, something she's always dreamed of in the song Somewhere That's Green. This song breaks my heart is somehow so silly um you know just the one the idea of maybe in 2020 the idea of this woman of any person thinking oh i would love nothing more than to have all the ladies over (laughs) to swap recipes at night while i stay home and clean all day i would love nothing more than that uh itself is a funny premise but the fact that they're able to balance it with like genuine emotion and heart um, is it's gorgeous. I love this song. It's it's so like almost like, OK, her aesthetic, the music choice of being very doo y in 50s. And then like even like I'm bringing the scene up right now because I like even like the magazine she pulls out, like the Better Homes magazine is like a 50s looking magazine. Mm-hmm. Like I don't. It's very strange, like, this weird, like, aesthetic where, like, she's in the 50s, but, like, no one else is, it seems like at times. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it, it's that, well, I mean, it's, well, they're they're so far away from when we think of the 50s family, the white picket fence and the beautiful, the suburbs and all yeah. that. And, um, but, it, think, but I mean, like, just, and then, like, you know. Steve Martin wearing the leather jacket and being a greaser. It's just there's a whole lot right, of right, like right. 50s like <laughs> aesthetics like thrown into this and it's very funny that way. Also this scene it, it dawned on me too watching it this this time around that again why they didn't consider Frank Cost sooner is is a shock to me because the picky musical dream sequences in both um Muppets Take Manhattan and Great Muppet Caper are such perfect practice for what he's doing here with Somewhere That's Green. Uh, yeah. Where one, he is totally elevating this song to something different and something really memorable to, frankly, one of the most memorable scenes in the entire movie. It's funny. It's heartwarming. It's 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 just lovely all in all. Um, but yeah, that was like perfect practice for like what he's doing here, what he's attempting here and now doing it on a much grander scale. Yeah. And also, once again, uh, we've this is now what the second time we've brought this up, maybe third time. If you recognize this scene and you're not a musical person, you probably saw it on an episode of Family Guy. Oh, is it they do this on yeah. Family Guy? 
Yeah, they did with um, the creepy old popsicle man singing about Chris. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) frankly, it is actually done. It's done pretty well. I'm sure it was done well. I don't know. I just I'm kind of at the point where like I'm just so like tired of the show. That I'm just kind of like, okay, we get it. <laughs> this was, like, I will say this, it was done during the era where it was still good. It okay. was, you know, it was it was still the prime era of Family Guy. Uh-huh. Which, what, maybe goes to about season six or six, seven if you're generous? Yeah. Basically, I'm going to say what, yeah. like, maybe a two seasons after American Dad started, probably? Yeah, that sounds about right. Because that, I think, that's like when I fully switched into being like, oh, American Dad's a better show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. Anyway, uh, a wonderful, beautiful, heartfelt number, um, just lovely. So the daydream is now over, and uh, we see a montage of of Seymour continuing to feed Audrey to his own blood, his energy now draining, his hands now filled with bandages. We hear the song uh, as it's all happening, sort of a montage of some fun now, which itself was originally. Uh, the song, oh God, what is it off the top of my head? Um, oh yeah, uh, You Never Know is what the original song was, but now they've taken a different spin on it, um, giving it almost like a steel drum, like Caribbean feel, um, mm. which I dig it. I like it. I like the I like the slight change to the song, if you know the original song. Um, kind of Man, Mankin loves the steel drum, you know? I'm trying to think what else? Wait, okay. What what else are we going making? Come on, bro. What's what what what, what what comes right after this? Oh, of course. Duh. <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah, come on. Man, Make you're love. right. He loves the steel this drum, man. He's just Dude, a big fan of that steel drum. <laughs> the seeds of it all are right here. I bet he yeah, liked vacations the in the seeds. Caribbean. <laughs> I bet like that's his thing. He loves. Yeah, he it. must have. Yeah, he must have been a big Caribbean guy. Yeah, that's a good call. This is probably he, he's probably like. Here's the, this is the funny thing because this is like uh, you never know is serves essentially the same purpose of the song, um, and I imagine he probably it was probably going to be in the movie, and then Mankin went. Can, can I try something real quick? Yeah, I, I got these. You know what I've, I've been really back. getting into lately? Yeah. <laughs> I just got back from the Bahamas. Yeah. And I just bought these. I just want to try something. Just um I'm just going to throw it at you. If you don't like it, throw it right back at me. It's fine. Yeah. And it worked. Uh. So uh Seymour soon then attempts to uh now as he's gained some courage, he tries to ask Audrey out but eventually turns him down because uh as she says, got a date with Aaron Scravello. Um and we try to learn who is this Orin Scrivello. We've been hearing so much about this Orin Scrivello, but who actually is this mysterious man, this uh, brutish man? What does he actually do for a living? Uh, and that's where we very quickly are cut to Steve Martin rolling down the road on his bike, and we get the song Dentist, yes. uh, which the reveal is still so funny uh, of him just rolling down the street uh, looking like Elvis with the greaser look um, even got the little snarled lip um, and then to barge through the door uh, and rip off his jacket is just so so funny my favorite Steve Martin is unhinged Steve Martin 
That is my to me and this the funniest. Is totally unhinged. Yeah, the most the most entertaining, the funniest is this the completely dialed up to maximum amounts. Steve Martin, uh, he's one of the few people that managed to take that same SNL energy and put it into movies and have it actually still be good. Yeah, that's a great call. That's a really good call. Uh, and for him to. I feel like also he he's done such a great job of balancing the two versions of himself uh, as an actor, and um, you know, love me some Steve Martin. Yeah. Uh, also, incredible banjo player. So there's that too. An amazing banjo. Uh, I love this. An amazing banjo player. Uh, the Jerk. One still one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, I love the song. It's so much fun. I could tell you um, that. As bad a person as he is, this is always everybody wants this part because he's this song is so fun. Oh it's, yeah, it's it's kind of maybe not the best thing that the worst character in the show, uh, the, who just demonstrably bad person, gets the most fun song. <laughs> I was gonna say, Cody, this uh, this sounds unbelievable to me. You're telling me a bunch of theater kids. Want a chance to chew up the scenery and overact for four minutes straight? I don't believe you. Yeah, yeah I, know. <laughs> I don't believe you. It's crazy. You know, <laughs> it's a crazy thought. You know, that's not how kid. That's not how those people act. That's not how those no, kids act. <laughs> not at all. No, no, no. Uh, Incredibly fun song. He totally chews it up. Also, um, once again, it's it, that's got to be a puppet. That big mouth where they go very briefly. Uh, yeah. Into the mouth where he's, you know, shut up, open wide, here I come, and he starts drilling, uh, which is just awesome. I love that moment. Awesome and gross. And the, yeah. So gross. It's awesome. It's gross. I love his little shrine to his mother. Um, and uh, I love little, the little gaps in the teeth. And the little dance, the little dance he does when he comes out of the closet, too, from yeah. his little shrine. <laughs> so funny. Oh my god. Very, very funny. So yes, this is who Audrey is dating. Uh also reminds me, isn't there there's a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode about how uh Larry makes like a joke about a dentist and how uh it might be the first episode and he's uh yeah basically then just catches so much shit as like a rumor starts spreading like he said this awful thing about like he said this super racist thing but it's just like a joke he made about a dentist are are you thinking of seinfeld is it seinfeld it is seinfeld there's a there's a part where kramer tells jerry's all you're an anti-dentite yeah that's what it is it's in seinfeld excuse me i am not an anti-dentite yeah there's a that Seinfeld episode. Uh, yeah. It just reminds me of that, of like someone watching this, a dentist watching this, being like, anti-dentite right here. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely no, he's right. Like, it's Brian Cranston. I, I don't know why I got my... Uh, yeah, he's like, what do you call a doctor that fails medical school? A dentist. <laughs> that's what, that's the joke he that's, says. Yes. Exactly. And then and then there's exactly. a part where he goes, he tries to say hi to someone at a funeral, and the guy looks at him and he won't shake his hand. He goes, my father practiced dentistry for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> he just walks away from him. Now get out of my face, you anti-dentite. <laughs> I'm now just away. imagining those people outside with picket lines outside of the theater for a little shop. Uh, <laughs> no room for anti-dentites is, in New York. That is a great reveal, though. Like, imagine you're, like, watching this on on you know on the stage for the first time, 
and yeah. he's got a leather jacket on, and I'm sure they keep like any dentist stuff out of the way so you can't see it. Yeah, you don't. And even he's know. talking about yeah. how he's a masochist and he's killing puppies and cats and he's doing all this stuff, and he's like, "So naturally, I'm gonna be a dentist." And I imagine that the crowd must have just ate that shit up and laughed so hard. It's real. It always is. It kills. It always, always kills. It's really, really. It's a really funny reveal. So yes, we learn that he is uh, the most evil of professions, a dentist, which explains his behavior. Uh, They do meet briefly uh, when Seymour, uh, Audrey, is being picked up by uh, the dentist, by Oren, where we really get to see his full just ugliness on display, uh, the way he treats Audrey, talks back to her, or basically tells her to shut up. Um, makes her he call is. a doctor. That's right, doctor. Uh, makes yeah, makes her call a doctor. Uh, although he does take a liking to the Audrey too, which uh, he is very very impressed by, uh, and did want to get a get a view of him. So Seymour now sees Mister Scrivello, warts and all, uh, for the terrible dude he is. And once again, Audrey is hungry as he's trying to exit for the night, uh, and eventually. Audrey 2 talks. <sighs> yes, Audrey 2 begins to talk to Seymour and demands blood. Must be blood. Must be fresh. Can't be any meats uh, from uh, the butcher down the road, from Schmedricks. Cannot be that. So uh, the plant demands to be fed in the song Feed Me. Get it. Uh... Just uh, the first look at that puppet. Like I said, not sure there's a more impressive puppet in movie history. Almost too good uh, to believe that it's just practical effects at play here. But Mm. God damn, it looks good. It really does. And the song is, I feel like it's at this point when you start realizing like, okay, so just every 15 minutes we're going to have a song that you go, oh, no, this is going to be the song that you remember from this musical. Like it seems like every that you go no 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 actually it'll be it'll probably hits. be this one then it's yeah. all hits baby yeah it's 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 incredible yeah it's really great as the song is going on of course uh, he's saying exactly what's going on here yes I like blood I like flesh that's what I need to keep surviving you want to keep being famous you know uh, you want a girl like Hedy Lamar as he says uh, then you got to feed me. So how exactly is Seymour going to do this? He doesn't really realize. I, I yeah. can't figure out how I'm going to do this. And, of course, Audrey, too, just says, well, why don't you? Uh, I think I know a person. And that's where we see the scene of uh, of Dr. Scrivello being uh, abusive to Audrey, uh, calling her a stupid cow, uh, just saying awful, terrible things. And that's when Seymour realizes it's got to be. Oren Scrivello that will be the first of his victims for Audrey too. So he heads to the dentist the next day, but not before patient Arthur Denton played by Bill Murray uh, requests uh, is waiting eagerly for his uh, appointment with Dr. Scrivello. Oh man. Uh, Like I said, this whole scene is uh, completely improvised by Bill Murray. Uh, I love where he's talking to <laughs> the scene where he's talking to the girl who walks out with the braces, where she's just like, 
yeah. Just, yeah, I love it so much. It's so so funny. It's great. Uh, yeah, and he's talking about oh yeah, I've got all these other dental appointments lined up. Uh, great moments. I'm glad they put it back in. Um, it's not in the stage version, and I think it absolutely should be. It's a fun, silly moment. If there's, you know, if there's, make time for it. It's a great fun moment uh, for everybody. See, the, the reason I like it load. is because I think it adds a little bit more into the character uh, Orin. Because he doesn't like mm-hmm. inflicting pain if the person likes it. I like that yeah, aspect. Yeah, that's true. I like that aspect. That's it makes him call. even more of a masochist. Like, it's not even that he feels good when hurting someone. He's like, no, but I want to make sure that they're suffering too. That's a good call. That's a really good call that he just doesn't, he can't do it with uh, him. Yeah, that's a great call. He even gets angry. He's like, wait, this guy, this guy's enjoying this shit. I don't like this. This isn't fun. Yeah. Yeah. It is very funny when he also, every tool he brings out, as he's just like talking normally, and then every time he brings out a more horrifying looking tool, you hear the, his voice kind of rise. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, uh, very, very funny. So, Orin, now furious and, and disappointed with the patient, um, bursts into the lobby, and there is Seymour. Uh, and he basically drags him into the office and realizes, hey, wait a minute, don't I know you? Uh, Seymour, by the way, came strapped. He's got a gun. He's going to kill uh, with the intention to kill uh, Oren Scrivello. Eventually, Oren decides, you know what? I'm going to really enjoy this appointment with Seymour. Decides to put on the nitrous oxide mask, but a gas mask malfunction occurs, which instead of Seymour having to actually shoot him, uh, he just decides to let Dr. Scrivello die from laughing. It's the Batman method. It's the Batman method. He was yeah. Jokerified before it was ever yeah. a thing. The first man to be Jokerified was <laughs> Dr. Oren Scrivello. I don't have to let you live. So Seymour does not unload the gun. He just lets uh, Oren Scrivello laugh himself to death. And then Seymour drags his body back to the flower shop and he chops it up for the plant. But in the middle of chopping up the doctor, Mr. Mushnik passes by the shop and he sees the shadowy figure of Seymour with an axe chopping the body and is witness to it. Doesn't confront him, but he does run scared off. And then Seymour does feed Mr. Scrivello to Audrey too. After Seymour can't sleep the next night, that night he discovers two policemen who are questioning Audrey about Oren's disappearance. Uh, when she go, he goes over to ask her what's going on. Uh, and then she tells him all about it and says that she feels guilty about Oren Scrivello's death. Even though she didn't cause it, she still feels like she's at fault. She always secretly wished he would die. Seymour then tries to reassure her uh, that she is a beautiful person and that she shouldn't, uh, feel that way and sings the song suddenly Seymour another just another butte just another how do you banger. have these two songs back to back it's not even fair it's insane um, it's insane how good this song is it's uh, I love this song so so much also the Ellen Green's sort of affected singing is so perfect for this role uh the way she does the 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 accent for audrey um 
I mean, maybe some people would call it distracting. I like it. I like that she's keeping the character. Um, I yeah, I love the way that she she portrays the song and the part, uh, and also when she belts it, damn, she's yeah, so damn good, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's yeah. you know the character for me it needs to have that kind of. This is like you know it's a black comedy. It's a dark comedy. And these people are all going to die. And so you kind of need to keep them as caricatures for as long as you can. Yeah. You can let them you can let them dive, you know, dig a little into some humanity. But for the most part, they have to also be kind of abstract versions of people, <laughs> because otherwise the end is just like then you really do get people like, you know, who are like horrified. <laughs> but, you know, up until, mm-hmm. you know, but this song with Feed Me right before it is just like what a double feature of songs like. Yeah. Like lots yeah. of musicals yeah. would kill to have two songs that good and that memorable. Let alone like two exactly. just right here in the middle of the movie. Yeah, exactly. When, you know, it's already had all of these incredible songs prior to it. Um just an incredible song. It's one that almost feel it's it's become like a Broadway standard to this point. Um a beautiful song, wonderful song. And you said it too that they are supposed to sort of be caricatures, but I think it kind of speaks to how good a job they do about earnestly playing these characters that in the first test screening, audiences were like, oh, no, and terribly sad and just super affected that, like, these characters are dead. And they're like, well, that can't happen. I loved these people. I grew to love these people so quickly. Um, I need them to live happily ever after forever in my mind. (laughs) Exactly. In my mind. (laughs) Uh, great song beautiful love the little sunrise at the end it's just great so now the two are in love they're together finally and seymour is on cloud nine but later that night mushnik finds seymour at the shop and accuses him of being a murderer he basically tells him if i saw you doing the deed baby seymour does confess that he chopped Orin up but denies that he actually killed him uh, before leaving the store, Mushnik decides to try to negotiate with Seymour. Basically says, I'll protect you um, if I'll protect you and, and let you go off and, and go into hiding and go get to a new identity. He said, you can come back in about 30 to 40 years and he will take care of the plant. Um, the whole time you hear the song Supper Time, where Audrey, too, is saying he's got you now. Wouldn't know what to do. I think it's time for supper, baby. I'm hungry. So Seymour is now nervously trying to figure out what to do as as Audrey, too, is singing, saying, come on, do it. Um, Mr. Mushnick backing up ever so slowly. And eventually, yeah, do it. Uh, (laughs) Eventually, Seymour gives in to Audrey, too, and pushes Mr. Mushnick into the plant. So now that is two victims to Audrey, too. But in the meantime, Seymour is still becoming even more famous as the plant keeps growing and growing. We hear a small little snippet of the Meek Shall Inherit, just uh, a a cut version of this song. I believe the original cut was going to have a longer version, but they don't restore it in the director's cut, Um, which, uh, yeah, in the stage version, this is like a full-fledged song where we see intercut more interviews with magazines, television shows, all sorts of things, newspapers, uh, as we're sort of seeing a, a montage of all those things. In the meantime, Seymour's still trying to figure out how do I keep this plant uh, alive. Uh, he decides the only thing he can do now 
is to leave town with Audrey uh, and leave the plant to starve to death. Seymour leaves the shop momentarily. He even tells Audrey, we're going to go get married. Let's let's do it. Let's get married tonight. Um, she packs her bags and they get ready to go. But suddenly a phone call for Audrey. She picks up the phone and it's another, none other than Audrey 2 as we hear Supper Time Part 2. She tries to figure out who it is. She looks through the window and she realizes that it is indeed Tui that is talking to Audrey. So soon after Tui is asking for, uh, Audrey goes over to the shop to figure out what's going on. Basically starts to realize uh, that Audrey is, Audrey too is not who she thought she was. And eventually after Audrey, uh, Tui asks Audrey for a cup of water, um, the plant grabs her body with the vines and brings her into his mouth and uh, says, you should join Orin and Mr. Muschik. They're already inside. Uh, she starts chomping on her. Seymour rushes back into the shop and tries to rescue her. Um, and this is where the original ending goes, or this is where the theatrical cut and the original cut start cutting off a little bit or start yeah. changing up here. This is the two paths diverged. Right, exactly, exactly. Choose wisely. This is the fork in the road here. He runs into the alley. He's carrying Audrey, who now is basically hanging on to life. Um, but she says, I'm going to die soon anyway. Um, Seymour begs her not to, but uh, Audrey tells him that, you know what? Feed me to the plant. It's what's been keeping you. So it's brought you all this joy and fame and fortune. You deserve it. So just let me be. Uh, as she sings the uh, reprise of Somewhere That's Green, as she says herself, I'll finally be Somewhere That's Green inside Audrey Two's stomach, is both a very funny and very sweet line. Um, I just got to say, the character of Audrey, what a beautiful soul. Um, mm -hmm. Just truly uh, one of the most wonderful and genuine characters uh, in fiction. I just, I just love her so much. It breaks my heart every time. Uh, this this part happens. She dies. Seymour holds on to her one last time uh, and brings Audrey's body over to Tui as we hear the music rising, uh, this very dramatic uh, feeding of Audrey too as she is gone. Or Audrey goes inside of Audrey too and Audrey too has been satisfied. Seymour then goes across the street to uh, the building across the way and starts hanging off the edge and is seen to, to be about to commit suicide. However, a man named Patrick Martin, played by Paul Dooley, shows up and tells Seymour that he went, about, went uh, on his own to cut some samples of Tui and decided to offer him a chance to sell Audrey to across the globe and across the country uh, and wants to ask Seymour for his permission to get on on this lucrative offer. Um, Seymour realizes what he has done and what is about to happen uh, if Audrey 2, if this plan is about to go through. He runs back to the flower, flower shop. Uh, I do like that uh, the guy says uh, that, uh, what is it, there's uh, there's no royalty, there's, like, there's no uh, trademark on uh, uh, on like plant clippings or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so he's going to go through with it anyway, no matter what. So Seymour realizes the only thing he can do, or yeah, that it's public domain. That's what it was. Uh, he runs back to the shop and basically says, this was your plan all along, uh, was to spread your seed across America. 
um, as devious and slightly disgusting as that sounds. Uh, and then, of course, Audrey 2, with a big roar and a laugh, says, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And we hear the song, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. I love this jam. This is my jam. <laughs> Paul, shaking your head, close your eyes, like, hell yes, this is the jam. Oh, Cody, I had no idea this was not in the original. This song is fantastic. It's wild that it's not in the original. It's so good. It should be added to like every production after this, and I. It's surprising it hasn't been. Yeah, it's just it's it's so like funky and just. I'm a big, you know, I'm just a big fan of these, these kind of numbers, these bombastic. Yeah, I don't know. I just Super, I can't like funky, soulful, awesome song. Also, the plant now is just in full effect now with mini plants and buddies. Yes. So uh, the harmonizing is just taken to a whole nother level and it's so impressive. Um, and yeah, and on top of it all, the song bangs, the song is a banger and it's, it kicks ass all the while. Seymour is trying to shoot Audrey too, but he knocks the gun away from him, uh, wraps him around. Um, Tui is growing bigger, taller, still causing more destruction. Seymour is hopeless and trying to avoid death. And eventually, Tui removes the support beam from the shop. It crushes the entire shop. Seymour uh, is stuck under the debris. He breaks out of the rubble. He grabs the plant's vine. All the little plant paws are all screaming and humming. As uh, Seymour is slowly lifted and eaten by Audrey too. Uh, and the best, the little cherry on top that I just absolutely love, he burps and the glasses fly out of his mouth. Mm. Beautiful. So now all of our characters have died. They've all been yes. eaten by the plants. Everybody's dead. The end. Basically, we do, though, get something of, a, of an epilogue here uh, where... The chorus girls show up, the Greek chorus with the, the United States flag behind them. Uh, and we he hear the song, Don't Feed the Plants, as we then see the reign of terror that has now stricken the country as the Audrey twos, the little mini Audrey twos that man's plan went through. They're selling them in every store across the country. And our Greek chorus warns on television that they have been terrorizing every big city you could think of, including your hometown. Uh, and that's where we get this just kick ass ending of a movie um, where one, you hear the song, which is a great finale. Um, and two, just this uh, like part monster movie part owed to things like, I think the, um, what is it? The theater that one of the plants burst through? Did you mm -hmm. notice the movie that's playing? No. I believe it's Jason and the Argonauts. Oh, okay. Which, of course, a little nod to, I mean, they're using miniatures right here at the end. Yeah. Uh, with a, in a mix of miniatures and puppets uh, to create this incredible scene of chaos. Uh, I love, like, the some of my favorite moments, the plant's mouth opening up and the train going inside of its mouth, um, the plant on the Brooklyn bridge, rocking it back and forth. 
Uh, and of course, uh, the to top it all off, the plants on top of the Statue of Liberty uh, as they crawl up. Audrey too cackling at the top as the big title card says the end question mark question mark question mark uh and that's it that's 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 the end of us it's the end of the world as we know it and the beginning of the plants and uh we now bow to our plant overlords i do like the very last part where uh of course it's meant for a theatrical audience uh the end and then the face bursts through as if it were bursting through the screen yeah 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 I, yeah. I forgot to mention that great little great little moment there. Yeah, yeah, a very like War of the Worlds style ending here, an ode to War of the Worlds, of course, uh, which kind of makes sense with H.G. Uh, Wells H.G. Uh, Wells story serving as part inspiration for the very first iteration of Little Shop of Horrors. Incredibly fun movie uh, and worthy of all of the love and admiration that it has gotten through the years. And of course, Paul, you alluded to it earlier, as they are doing with everything that has was once beloved and, and, and is fantastic and doesn't need to be changed at all. We're going to go ahead and change it anyway and make a remake of Little Shop of Horrors. So um, I will say this. And, and of course, if you've been listening to us from the beginning, you know that uh, one thing we've done is recast movies. It's uh, every once in a while we'll do that. Uh, no need to do it for this because we've got a movie already and we have pretty much got a cast right now. Um, do you have the cast in front of you here, Paul? I do. Uh, right. Well, first I want to go over the director because that's, that's one thing that, that stuck out to me. The director is Greg Berlanti. Uh, if mm. you know his name, you know him as mostly a producer. Uh, he produced all of the CW uh, DC shows. Uh, he produced oh. Arrow... Supergirl, Flash, he produced Riverdale. Uh, basically anything that the big boom of 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 you know television on there, he he kind of was responsible for that new uh, wave. Also just directed Love Simon. Did not realize that. Was he the director of that? He was the director, yeah. Just looked it up. Interesting. Okay, um now what what has me curious about this it kind of alleviates me a little bit. One, he loves musicals. Pretty much, Supergirl has had multiple musical episodes. Uh, he's a big fan of that genre as it is. But also, the fact that he did Riverdale. Riverdale is the most bananas, wacky, insane show in the history of anything. He took Archie Comics and said, what if we made it like a dark noir with like weird... like." Cody, I'm just gonna give you a rundown of some of the some of the storylines of Riverdale. Um, Archie is dating Veronica. Her father uh, Fair is the owner of a of a whiskey business or a rum business. Excuse me, a okay. rum business. He's also a mob leader uh, who's killed multiple people. Um, mm. At one point, uh, one of his hired goons was Archie, a teenage boy, uh, who. But then there was this other issue where he Archie was forced to fight inmates in an underground prison ring held under the gym of the high school. Uh, no one told me that this was a prison riot show. Uh, if um, you told me Riverdale, oh, it's actually a prison riot show, then I would be like, well, I'm in now. Uh, 
uh, there's a there's a drug. I think it's called. I believe. I think if I remember correctly, it's called Jingle Jangle. Um, where people get Excellent. extremely messed up. Uh, there's a game that people play called Griffins and Gargoyles, which is like a Dungeons and Dragons game, except real murders happen. And um, excellent. Yeah, there's been cult leaders. Um, there's just a lot of stuff. Do we yeah. need Casper in this? <laughs> I, uh, at some point, I would hopefully. imagine with 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 murder and and you know, uh, so my underground my, prisons, you got to yeah. have the gritty reboot of Casper and part of the Archieverse. So my point is, he's he's not a person who's not a who's afraid to like throw wacky shit at the wall and be like, right. it, This he's is entertainment, well baby. For this, yeah, this right. this is right up his alley. How that means he's going to be as a director, I don't know, but that gives me a little bit into like the tone. Like I think he's going to be faithful to the tone. Now, that's fair. The acting is where we're. Yeah, this this is the bread and butter. The the cast of this movie, which first of all, I actually love the casting for Seymour, uh, Taron Egerton, who is a great singer. Wonderful. I think is the right look. He's the right size. He is the right guy. I think he's a great choice for this role. Despite um, being I, I don't really an ingrown, be, but yeah. Despite being an incredibly handsome man, mm, he made me works. believe he was an awkward young Elton John. Mm-hmm. So well, mm-hmm. he made me believe in Eddie the Eagle that he was this was misfit say, nobody, and that's it's like I I trust him to to do it totally. Uh, yeah, Chris Evans as Orin totally works for me. Yeah, that totally works. I think that me, one, I think that's he's apparently been begging for the role. That one's still more up in the air, but he's apparently like gone on record to be like, I yeah. really want this part. And honestly, uh, what Chris Evans gets, Chris Evans, what Chris Evans yeah. wants, Chris Evans gets, baby. Uh, Billy Porter as Audrey too. Bravo! Yeah, wonderful. I am so that may be my favorite casting of this of the uh, rumor casting yeah. right now, and, and that's based the only on one the... that's confirmed. Yeah, and based on the order in which I've gone, I think you might have an idea of what, what I'm getting to. How you feel um, about the Audrey casting? Yes. So Scarlett Johansson as as Audrey. I'm. Yeah. I just. You I don't know, know what, what it she's is. Gonna be what? You know what she's going to be, Paul? What was that movie with Joe Squared Levitt a few years ago? Don John was that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. She's going to be that character. Yeah. Except and just, just a little, le- obviously less confident, but yeah. I don't know. I don't. That's I don't know if I'm. Like. I don't know if I'm scarjoed out. I might be. But like, for some reason, and I know she's great. I real. I just loved her in Jojo Rabbit. So, like to me, I think she's great. It's just I don't know if there's just been too much scarjo in my life <laughs> for a while. Yeah, but, and there's also the fact, Paul, that that Audrey is not Asian, so why are you casting Scarlett Johansson? That doesn't make true, any sense. True, true. It already knocks out her and Emma Stone from being in the role. It's it's not... <laughs> you can't do that. Um, but also, you know, I and I... Well, frankly, if you're going to get annoyed at my next point, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. But also, um, Little Shop So White? I mean, so we got three leads, all white folks. That's That's kind of... Yeah, we could have done a little more di- on the diversity end uh, for this. And uh, yeah, just from a vocal standpoint, uh, I know Scarlett Johansson can sing, but it is sort of the, the curse of modern musicals, movie musicals, I should say, is that you get people who are just good enough, you know? 
you don't go out and be like, well, like Ellen Green wasn't going to be the original Audrey, um, even though yeah. she's clearly the best pick. Uh, they were going to so go with you, bigger names. It's just I the have, difference now is they, they just go with the bigger names and they stick with the bigger names and you get a product that I just think, think frankly, is is not as good. Cody, I have a suggestion for who I'd rather see. Shoot. She's already sang on screen and she sang well. She has a lot of buzz from being in a TV show that has made a magi- massive hit this year. I'm talking about Journey Smollett, who who sang an entire number in Birds of Prey and was amazing. Okay. And she just killed it in Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country sure. this year. Sure, that's that that show's so hot right now, as the kids would say. Uh, to me, and but she's not that's like a, a superstar. She's not like a superstar yet. She which looks like, like that's a yeah. She she would look the part. Yeah, oh yeah, that's a good call. To me, like I just see that and I think, okay, I don't know. Maybe it's because Scarlett Johansson is just such a big superstar at this point that I can't see her being this, like, almost distracting. Yeah, I yeah, guess. that's that's what it is. Yeah, the the whole time I feel like I'm just gonna be like, oh look, it's Scarlett Johansson being 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 Audrey. Whereas for a role like the dentist, that is kind of a chew on. That's the, the point. Perfect for a cameo <laughs> role. That's the point yeah. of the role. Yeah. yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, I don't think anyone lo- saw the movie Little Shop and was like, "That's not Steve Martin." I think everyone went, "That's Steve Martin." <laughs> like, it's, yeah, and that's yeah. the fun of it. That's the allure yeah. of it is that it's Steve Martin. Uh, I will also suggest it will never ever happen uh, for the masochist role. Uh, let's get uh, Connor O'Malley if you're uh, familiar with him, aka if you watched the uh, Tim Rob the Fantastic Tim Robinson show on Netflix. Um, I don't know. Oh, Paul. Oh, wait. First of all, have you not watched that show? What's the name no. of it? Uh, Tim Robinson's uh, I Think You Should Leave, I think, is the is the show. No, I haven't seen it. No. Oh, Paul. Oh, I'm so excited for you right now. You have no idea. Anyway, there's an incredible sketch with uh, the actor Connor, with Connor O'Malley. Um, I'll just leave it at that. I'm not going to spoil it to you, but he has okay. a sketch on there where uh, I need him to play the masochist, uh, the Bill Murray role, because it will never happen. He will not get cast in this movie, but oh my God, it will be the oh, you know, in just, the world. You know who I would cast in the, in the masochist role? Eric Andre. It's exactly the same energy on. Okay, okay. It's exactly the same type of energy. Eric Andre is another perfect choice for that <laughs> role. Um, anybody who is just too much, let's do it. Yeah, that kind of guy. Well, Paul, I'm very excited for you to do that homework assignment. And uh, until then, um, at least we will always have this. Oh, I didn't even bring it up. They're gonna CGI the shit out of that plane, aren't they? And it's gonna look fucking terrible. I I hope they don't. I really hope they don't. They're going to. They're going to. They are absolutely going to. Just hit up the I'm Henson just, just, Company. Right. Ask them. It's, you would think, right? You would think that's what they should do. But they're not going to do it, Paul. I'm mentally prepared for terrible-looking CGI Ugh. plant. Ugh. I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm just. I'm already prepared for it. So that when it does happen, uh, my level of disappointment will be uh, far less uh, than me expecting a plant because also one you can't they already perfected it so why even try to get next why even try in a way you know like you already have the perfect puppet plant just just do a cgi 
It's what they're going to do. Yeah. It's going to suck. Just saying. Just be prepared for that soulless CGI plant. Um, they can't learn their lesson. The, every, everybody should have watched that that new Hobbit trilogy. And we all should have learned our lesson. Practical is better. When you can do practical effects, it's better. It's yeah. fine to do CGI when you need to. But when you don't need to, don't do it. That's all. Anyway. That's going to wrap it up. Uh, happy Halloween, everybody. Have a safe and happy we, we Halloween. We did it. We did it. Spooky season has ended. Are you spookified enough? I hope you are. And uh, if you want to catch up on our previous spooky season episodes, you can, of course, uh, you can, of course, go to our website. Mm-hmm moviemusicalpod.com you can follow us on twitter at moviemusicalpod and on facebook at moviemusicalpod subscribe to us and review us please we would love it on apple podcasts and uh, subscribe to us there and of course you can follow me on twitter at cody pasby you can follow me on twitter at the paul ponte you can also go to paulponte.com <laughs> for all my stuff I love the list. That kills me. Until next time, I'm Cody Pasby. And I'm Paul Ponte. Don't feed the plants. 